creating a sales development team from scratch or scaling an existing one can be you know, pretty tough. And those are two entirely different strategies. If you're starting from scratch and it's a fairly new motion at your company, uh, there's going to be one way that you approach that that's very different from scaling something that's already working. It's also a challenge of knowing if you're at a point in which it makes sense to scale. So we're going to get into more of that in this episode. My guest is Sarah Hicks from Predictable Revenue. And if you're listening to this podcast for the first time, my name's Jason Bay. You can call me Jay Bay. This is Outbound Squad. You're in the right place if you're an SDR or an AE that's tasked with doing outbound prospecting to land meetings. And maybe you're an SDR that is on a path to become a first-time account executive, or maybe you're an account executive that's just looking for ways to self-source your pipeline. We also dig into ways to run a tight sales process as well. So discovery demos, negotiation, objection handling, all that kind of good stuff. If any of that sounds like stuff that you're being tasked to do, you're definitely in the right place. So today, what we're going to do is talk about how to benchmark, grow, and scale sales development teams. So what we're going to dig into is what to do if you're scaling for the first time. So how to create benchmarks, variables, comp plans, what to get started with, how to be lean and mean. And then she's also going to dig into what to to do if you're trying to scale and it's not working. I mean, we get really in depth. So your ICP, your positioning, choosing your personas, choosing your sales development style. Are you more of a personalization and scale type of org? Are you doing account-based and sort of everywhere in between? So if that's something that you're working on as a sales leader right now, or helping scale as a sales rep, you're definitely in the right place. So before we get to the interview, if you're listening to the show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, if you could do me a quick favor, give the show some love on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, give a quick, honest review or rating. It helps get more eyes and ears on the show so that we can continue growing it. That's all I got. Let's get to the interview. I'm curious, how did you, before we kind of get into everything today, I always just wonder how people end up getting into sales. And if I'm not mistaken, you you have a background in improv, I think it is. Yeah. I mean, that's part of it. It's, it's okay. in like yeah. performance acting, the, the whole thing. So improv okay. is definitely, definitely in there. Um, yeah. The background is in performance. Like that's my, that's my main background. I went to school, uh, you know, yeah. went to university, got a fine arts degree, um, and was doing the whole audition thing. Uh, when a friend of mine who worked at predictable revenue was like, look, I think you'd do a good job in this SDR role. Like, why don't you give it a go? Cause I was feeling pretty burnt out with the auditioning and like working at a bar at night. And I was like, oh man, I need like a steady, yeah. a steady job in one place. And so I was like, yeah, okay, let's do it. And I, uh, went in, started working at, at PR as one of their outbound SDRs and, luckily got to kind of stretch the performance muscle to a certain degree with, um, well, first of all, cold calling, I think is a a whole performance. Like you got to be able to put Mm -hmm. on those performance pants and give it a go. But also I got to do the podcast. And so as you know, that's like, it's a little bit of hosting, a little bit of like talk show host vibes, but also um, learning a ton. Um, But that's kind of how I got into sales. Like no, like many people, that was not the ultimate goal for me. Um, But I think Mm -hmm. the other thing that you and I have in common is that I did have a slight foray into sales back like one of the summers uh, in high school when I worked for Student Works Painting and did door to door. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't know that. And the painting. 
pricing of houses. So got a little taste of it there, but really, really stepped into it at predictable revenue. That's hilarious. The, uh, the door to door, I don't know about for you. It makes uh, cold calling seem like pretty easy compared to knocking on some, I don't know what people are like in Canada, if they're friendly or not with people that knock on their door, but it's just not, uh, would you see someone's disgust as they walk up to the door because you can see them through their window? It's like yeah. the worst. <laughs> oh man, it's not fun. It's not fun. It is way worse. And you're also, you're like there, you're there. You can't just hang up and be like, that went terribly. Like yeah. it's okay. You're literally <laughs> standing there. And then they, yeah, you see them like look through and be like, I don't know this person. Say something yeah. rude or at the very least, just like you said, like disgusted, even if it's kind. And then you have to do the walk of shame. You turn around. You're like, thanks. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> walk back yeah. to the street. Try again. What were some of the things that you took from your acting career and going to the auditions and things like that? What? Uh, how did that bleed through with cold calling, let's say, for example? Yeah. Huge parallels between those two things. Because one of the things you have to learn very quickly with auditioning is not to get knocked down by rejection you're not stepping into every audition and getting every single role. So you're going to have to learn how to kind of be okay with it. And I would argue similar to the door-to-door thing, it's actually way more painful to get rejected by four people to your face that you step into the room and they're like, ah, just, you're just not for us. I just, we don't, we don't love your look. We didn't really like the way you did that. It's way more personal (laughs) when it's about you and they want you. And then same thing, you turn around and you do the little walk of shame out the room and you say, good luck with the rest of your auditions. So that built a really thick skin for me to be able to cold call. Cause first of all, it's got nothing to do with me. It's my product. Oof. That's a, that's a relief. Mm -hmm. That's already a a degree of separate separation that I can um, have there with cold calling. Yeah. But then it's also the ability to just like get back on the horse and do it again. Whereas with an audition, you're like sitting there racking your brain for the next like 48 hours being like, where did I go wrong? Could I have done it again? Whereas on cold calling, back on the horse, next call, there's someone else that's that's ready to have that conversation. So huge parallels there for sure. It's so personal, I would imagine, getting shut down in an audition. I, I couldn't imagine like doing what we do now. I couldn't imagine part of the requirements being like how you look, you know what I mean? It would be like, (laughs) and I I get that it's probably different. I like what you said about your company, (laughs) but I just have to say like, I don't really like your face. And so therefore I just don't look right for me. Yeah. It's a, that's a, that's a little harsh. It's a little brutal. Um, So you did really well, obviously as an SDR with predictable revenue, you've had a couple other roles. How did, how did you get into and, and maybe just share a little bit more about what you're doing now, but how did you get to yeah. the point that you are now and how are you working with clients now? Yeah, absolutely. I always credit a huge part of it to the podcast and you'll know this from doing it yourself. Mm-hmm. It's like this ab- ability to tap into experts and they actually want to talk to you about stuff. Like if we tried to cold call these experts and be like, look, give us your tips, give us your tricks. There's no way they'd be interested, yeah. but they get on the podcast and they just bare their souls. And so that was amazing. I got to, I feel like I accelerated my learnings um, by being able to speak to these experts, pick their brains, and then go and apply that in my own prospecting, managing teams. So huge part of why I'm able to do what I, what I'm doing is the podcast. And, um, and then I, uh, from the SDR role, I moved into an SDR management role and a predictable revenue. We do, uh, we build S- uh, SDR teams, sales development teams to, for our um, clients. So when I was an SDR manager, I wasn't just an SDR manager of a team prospecting, you know, one ICP, one product, one service. I was 
basically an SDR manager for like eight, nine companies at once. So that again was like a massive accelerator of learnings. I feel like I, I, I would have had to have done eight, eight years of different jobs to get that uh, experience, but was able to really fast track that. Um, And then after a a few years of working with predictable revenue, I started to work with our coaching consulting department where I help companies who want to build that in-house go from zero to one, one to 10 on, on the whole sales development motion. And so that's, that's what I'm doing today. Uh, And I'm also now the director of that department. So helping um, all of our coaches do the best they can do, but um, in terms of what we do with clients, it's like really starting all the way back with the very foundations, the very strategy, like why you've decided to even do outbound in the first place and who you think you're going to do it to and why you think it's going to be successful. Going from there, building out the tactics, building out the playbook, getting it repeatable, getting it scalable, and making sure that it is a profitable engine. Yeah. You mentioned something I so relate with that I don't think people understand that don't that aren't in our line of work that they completely take for granted is you having to manage a team of eight or nine people that are selling different or uh, prospecting for different things Mm -hmm. is uh, what it helps. I don't know if you found this, but what it's working with different companies has helped me develop actual frameworks because unless you've applied a process uh, to in different with different contexts, with a different product, with a different market, you don't really know if that framework is going to work. No, You know what I mean? It just works for your company. Exactly. Did you your own thing? Yeah. 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 How did that help uh, with your, you mentioned your learning curve. What were some of the things that you picked up, you know, in your first couple months or six months doing something like that, where you're like, okay, I have to like be able to teach people that are selling different things, talking to different people. I mean, imagine there was different deal sizes, different sales cycles, all kinds of different stuff between them. Mm -hmm. I think some of the, the kind of starkest things that I, that I had to pick up really quickly was a really clear call framework. Um, Like if we're tasked with building a call script for um, these SDRs prospecting for these different companies, different products and services, um, we needed a way to be able to compare them. Obviously, it's not quite apples to apples, but kind of. You want to be able to um, benchmark off of other SDRs and learn from other SDRs. And you want to be able to make sure that there are as few variables as possible. So you're not going to just call using a completely different call script and it's a different market and it's a different product, all those things. You want to try and use the same types of tactics, but customized for that product, that service, that market, whatever. And that way you can start to see the patterns in the frameworks for opening a call, the frameworks for handling an objection. Um, so the the sort of style or the approach that we take, even though we're um, customizing obviously the words or, or what we're offering or whatever. So a huge part of it was absolutely the, the calls, um, especially since as many of you guys will know, and many of you will be doing, you love to do kind of like a call, a stand up or something where you listen to calls, listen to each other's calls, give some feedback, or maybe you're all doing role plays. But imagine you're all selling different things. Those role plays are not going to be that effective if there's nothing similar about them at all, or you're not gonna be able to give any feedback on a call if it's just a completely different call start to finish. But if we're practicing the approaches, um, not only can we see the patterns and kind of coach people all at once, but you can learn from each other and hop to a new product very quickly. Like an SDR that goes from prospecting on behalf of one of our clients and moves on to another client can then apply those learnings as opposed to be starting from absolute ground zero. Yeah. It's super clutch too, because once you have that, it's, I don't know, I imagine there's a process you go through when you start working with a client. And and part of that is probably just some discovery of, 
hey, I need to understand kind of who their clients are and what they care about. And, and um, it's really interesting because I look at, you know, what's the average onboarding these days for an SDR? I think it's nine weeks or something like that for them to be fully ramped. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like someone like you or I can go in and like in a couple of weeks, have a pretty good idea of how to prospect and start picking up the phone and landing meetings. And it's the frameworks. It's just the experience of seeing this contextually applied across a bunch of different situations. So the companies you had mentioned before we started recording, they kind of come to you guys at Predictable Revenue in one of two situations. They're going outbound for the first time, or they have some sort of outbound motion. Could be a company very small, could be a company very large, Mm -hmm. but whatever it is that they're doing isn't quite working. Yeah. If we were to talk mostly to the companies scaling, but not working because it's probably going to be mostly the audience listening to this. Mm-hmm. What are some of the things that you're, I don't know, maybe you're even thinking about this through the sales process, but what are some of the big kind of macro things that you're looking at to like really figure out why it might not be working? Yeah. I mean, this, this is another framework we're talking about. Like it's, it's such a pattern across all of these companies. Like they can be targeting different people. They can have different teams, different deal sizes, all that stuff. And most of the time it comes all the way back to the strategy and kind of, um, and I'll break down what all those elements are in the strategy, but oftentimes people feel like the way they're expressing their kind of challenge with outbound is like our, our emails are not getting good replies. We can't get any replies from email or we're not connecting on the phone or our, our reps aren't converting on the phone. So we really need you guys to come in and help fix that. And I'm like, absolutely. We'll have a look at that. However, when you actually dig in and do that discovery that you're talking about, turns out that it's maybe not the messaging. It's maybe who they're targeting. Uh, it's maybe how they're reaching out to begin with, what channels they're using, how frequently, what automation, what um, personalization, all that kind of stuff. So the most common big problem with outbound is not the tactics, it's the strategy. Yeah. Let's talk about the who part. Mm-hmm. Uh do you ever get people saying that they're solutions industry agnostic so they can just reach out to everyone? Okay. I love when I'm like, hey, yeah. tell me about your ideal customer profile. And they're like, any company with five or more employees. And I'm like, so you're ideal. You're ideal. You're like my dream customer. If I could sit them down and this would be my perfect customer, it's somebody with six people, like based in Singapore yeah. in, in an industrial company or yeah. like what? it's really anybody. And they're like, Oh no, like it would be this. I'm like, okay, so you got to think about the ideal part of ideal customer profile. First of all, we're not talking total addressable market here, mm-hmm. but yeah, all the time people are like, yeah, any, anybody, anybody who signs a check, that's my ideal customer. So where do you, where would you typically start working with? And let's, let's pretend it's a company. They, they have product market fit. Like they've got that part kind of figured out. What are some of the things that you see them messing up on when it comes to how they think about or an approach uh, the targeting and the who part from a strategy standpoint. Yeah, I think, I mean, mentioning product market fit, like that's really important because it's going to be a whole different conversation. If you're, for instance, if you've never sold through outbound or you're even pre-revenue on a product, like you're going to have a whole lot less insight into this. But if, yeah, you've got product market fit, so you're retaining your customers at a really high rate. They're referring their friends. They're pumped about you. Like all these things that are showing you, you've really nailed it. Um, you need to be looking for patterns in those customers. Like, why did those customers come to you? Who is the person at that company who's making the decision? What are the pain points that they came to you with? Why you as opposed to a um, a competitor or as opposed to do nothing? And you need to look for those patterns. 
And that's kind of how you analyze based on your existing customers who might be your ideal customer because you're looking for the people who are going to get the greatest impact from you, who are likely to pay the most, who are going to stick around the longest. And then you can say, okay, if we model um, an ideal customer off of all of those examples, that's one way to do it. But the other part of it that I think a lot of um, companies miss is that you need to pair that with what you can profitably, what you can spend to profitably acquire a customer. So if you have product market fit in a tiny industry, you've got a really finite amount of accounts that you can work for and your deal size is not that big, but you've already got five reps on the team and you want them to start prospecting. You got to, you got to go back on that and have a look and say, okay, what I can spend to profitably acquire a customer is a function of the average deal size. Like what, what revenue is actually going to be brought in by these customers. And then what I'm going to spend to go out and get these these customers. We know outbound is more expensive now than ever. The tools are expensive. People are expensive. They're, they can command higher salaries. Um, and it takes more time to book each meeting, which means it's more expensive to get each meeting. If you've got to go personalized, if you've got to sort of go slow and steady, it's, it's costing more money. So if you then have a tiny average deal size and a tiny market, no way it's going to be profitable. So you need to go back to the drawing board and say, okay, can we move up market? Because maybe that Maybe we thought that was our ideal customer profile, but it's not our ideal outbound customer profile, given all the spend that's going to have to happen to acquire that customer. So you're you're sort of having to combine a few things to understand what the right sales development approach is, um, considering who can we target, who cares about us enough that they're actually even going to respond via outbound, then what revenue can we get from them? And then how can we make sure that we acquire that revenue profitably? It's sort of a, a marriage of those two ideas that I think is the biggest mess that most companies have. Yeah. That second one is really interesting. The ideal outbound yeah. ICP is kind of interesting. So, so basically God, there's so much to this because it's so much bigger than the sales department. hundred percent. You know, this is like the entire go to market motion of this company, you know? Yeah. And um, so if I'm hearing you correctly, it's, Hey, we might have a lot of clients that we work with that you know, makes sense for us to do demand gen type of work too. And it, like we can get them profitably, but to dedicate an SDR team to this mm-hmm. just doesn't really make sense. Yeah. Yeah. And so you need to end yeah. up looking at segmenting your ICP further. And so if you've got your ICP yeah. and maybe it is a little bit more defined, it's like we work really well with industrial companies that have over 500 um, headcount and over 50 million in revenue. Okay. That's great. If we're looking at what revenue we generate right at that cusp of 500 um, headcount and, and 50 million, is that going to get us you know, the money that we need? Are we going to get the ROI from this motion? If not, can we segment further and create like an enterprise or a, a, a different segment within that and say our outbound team only goes after this segment of the ICPs? And in that case, I would redefine that as like an outbound ICP as opposed to just um, a kind of general ICP. And so segmentation is one of the first things that we look at with with customers when we're kind of redefining what that ideal customer profile looks like. It's like, okay, how can we segment further um, and make sure that the people we're targeting are going to generate that ROI? And then also our message can be that much more relevant, right? Because, you know, different things are going to be happening at, at companies of different sizes and and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. We'll bookmark that second part because that's where I would definitely want to go next is the relevance piece is, uh, okay, what are some of the things that, like, what is an ICP to you, you know? Because yeah. 
for some people, it's, oh, we go after this industry. From you, I'm hearing, you know, there's the employee count, there's revenue, and then there's all, there's a bunch of other stuff that we can segment for too. What are some examples of other ways that you might be thinking about segmenting? And you guys are all about the niches, which I love. You know, it's like the more niche, like the example I always give is, you know, draw a big circle in the middle of a piece of paper, and that's like your target market. You know, that's that's your market right there. You can't approach all of those people at all of those different companies in the exact same way. We need to find like little pockets and niches yeah. where what you alluded to earlier, we can communicate with small groups of people in a very similar way. That's how we get scale, you know, when we do outbound. But what are some of the ways when you think ICP and segmentation, what are some of those parameters that we might be thinking about to, yeah. to segment? Yeah, I think there's a few different ways you can approach it depending on, uh, yeah, your market, what you're selling, those types of things. So some of the kind of easiest ways to think about this are um, if you can truly work with, say, anybody in leadership at a certain type of company in a certain certain industry, then you can just make a pretty easy segment that's based on something as simple as like, okay, they got to be over this size or within a certain size size, size range in agriculture. There's my ICP. Um, or if you do for these companies that say to us like, oh, well, we're industry agnostic, give me a clearer definition on why that is. And in all likelihood, what you mean is that there are different use cases in different industries. So we can work with many industries. So I would segment potentially that ICP by use case. So if your tool always gets used by a few different titles and a few different industries for serving a certain purpose, you can segment that way and you can segment by that particular use case. It's like the goal that they're trying to achieve or the outcome that they're trying to achieve with your product. Some products, um, if they're, for instance, like HR software, you might be able to go pretty wide and actually just segment it by the type of title. Um, because you can probably get away with using your custom variables to throw in the kind of industry related um, customization. Like if it's really not going to be different between an agriculture company and a retail company like HR's HR and they're managing their people, maybe you can segment by persona. So the kind of industry or, or sub vertical, if you need to break it down any further, use case and persona are kind of the, the highest level um, way that you can segment. But then you can get much more complicated and you can get into like buying triggers. Um, so if you have, okay, we know we work really well with HR in agriculture, but they tend to be more likely to buy when they've just raised a round. Now you've added a parameter, mm -hmm. raised their series A in the, in the last six months. So now that's an, an, uh, another further segmentation, but also another bullet in the definition of your ideal customer profile. Um, maybe... Some of the things around um, buyer persona, like new new enroll comes in and wants to shake up the way the departments run. So then you've got, again, another way to further segment. We've got agriculture companies, HR departments raised around in six months, person just joined the company. And basically you're like narrowing and narrowing and narrowing this ICP, um, both by things that seem to equate to them being more likely to buy and more likely to stick around, more likely to have a conversation, but also just make it easier for you to reach out to them in a relevant way, like we mentioned. Yeah, I love that. And I don't, I don't know your, what your experience has been. I, I hardly ever, I don't think I've ever seen one time where I was like, oh, that's too niche. No. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's Never. usually the exact opposite. Yeah. Um, okay. This, um, the reason I ask this is I do see this at a lot of different companies and they have different definitions for this. What is, 
Like, how do you guys look at product market fit and whether a company has achieved product market fit or not? Yeah, I, I totally agree. This is like a super nebulous topic. Like I think, I think even our definition sort of up, is updating and, and changing as we learn more. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually a big focus. Uh, Colin Stewart, our, our CEO, it's a big focus of his right now to sort of dig into that and redefine what we think that is from, from the predictable revenue perspective. Um, because like we mentioned earlier, product market fit is sort of this precursor, this like pre prerequisite to success with outbound um, that it can be mm-hmm. very difficult to define. I think some of the some of the pieces that have stood out to me and and make me really confident that you have product market fit is if you have been able to source over 10 customers through outbound. So you've proven out that you can reach out to people cold. These and these are true cold outbound prospects. They're not like I don't know, re-engaging old prospects or like mid-bound leads that have signed up for a webinar. Like this is true, true cold outbound. You've been able to source 10, 10 customers, 10 similar looking customers following our like outbound ICP idea. Um, that's on the kind of acquisition side of things. But I think a big part of proving out product market fit is also your ability to retain your customers. So if you've got um, yeah. like 95% retention rate, in all likelihood, you're actually solving the problem that you say you solve, and also your customers are willing to stick around and keep paying for it to be solved. So that looks really good. Um, and then a lot of people like um, Sangram Vajray wrote a, a book on on go-to-market called Move, the, the four go-to-market somethings. Anyway, great book. <laughs> it's really interesting. Um, <laughs> his definitions, yeah. I'm feeling a lot of his here. Um, and another one is just the uh, the referral piece. Like if you're, your customers are out there sort of shouting from the rooftops and being like, look, like, to, to their buddies, to their peers, you got to try this out because it really made a difference for us. In all likelihood, you're solving the problem and it's worth paying for. So there are some sort of metrics that you can tie to that and say like, okay, if we've got 95% retention, if we're getting X many referrals, X percent referrals, um, and we're able to source customers through outbound, then we're, then we've got product market fit. Um, but I think it's not so black and white. Like I think a lot of people are maybe on the cusp yep cusp of product market fit, or they have some visibility into those metrics and not into some others. So it's really tough to draw a line and say, yep, you've got it. Because it's only really clear once you get huge. And you're like, oh, yeah, of course, like HubSpot's definitely got product market fit, but they also now don't need help writing outbound sequences. Like usually it's a little bit tied together that outbound isn't working. The strategy isn't solid, maybe because the product market fit isn't quite there either. Like these things are sort of a knock on effect. Yeah. One I would add to is social proof, which is a result of the client getting like actually having case studies. Yeah. There's so many companies that have no case studies or any kind of success stories or anything like that. And I just think about the poor salespeople, you know, when they have no examples to share, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, Um, like that right now, hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, it's awful. So (laughs) What part is next for you? You look at the the who part. You started to kind of talk about the message a little bit yeah. too, but what are other some of the, I don't want to skip ahead. What are some of the mm-hmm. big other pillars that you that you look at when you're assessing a company? Yeah, so we've got we covered the kind of segmentation and the spend. Um the other part once you've sort of looked at that segmentation is understanding how you're positioned in that segment. So I think we often like to do a kind of broad brush strokes understanding of where we exist in kind of the overall market, like the huge existing total addressable market, whatever. Um, But you need to understand within each of those segments how you're positioned, because there might be a competitor that markets 
really well to one segment of your that you've defined as a potential segment to go after. And so you're actually going to have stiffer competition there than you might be in some other segments. And so it kind of goes back to those ideas of like the red ocean, blue ocean strategy, like that whole thing where you have to understand, Mm -hmm. um, are you entering a market that is full of people who do what you do? If so, how do you actually differentiate in a tangible, measurable, quantifiable way um, so that you can come in and, and you know, make an argument as to, as to why somebody would choose you over someone else? Are you going to a market where there's no competition, which could be great because there's no competition, or it could mean maybe that whole industry is, is like they're traditionally um, like laggards. They don't like to adopt new technology. Maybe that's why there's not a whole lot of adoption going on there, in which case that's going to inform the strategy as well. So positioning being this other piece that sits on top of the spend and the segmentation. Um, who, who are you in the context of this market? Um, what do people do to solve that problem instead? Whether that's actually purchasing no. from a competitor or whether it's a like internal competitive alternative like spreadsheets. You know, that's that's probably the most common one for for software vendors. Like your biggest competitor, especially if you're looking at SMB, it's not another software. It's spreadsheets and Google Docs and and the way we've oh. always done it. So just under understanding the context that you exist within is like the next the next piece to understanding those segments and if they are the right ones to go after. Um, and then beyond that, it's the sales development style. So sales development style is a function of all the things that have come before it. And when we talk about sales development style, it's like, um, the actual approach you you should be taking to try to book a meeting. So for instance, um, probably the most common motion right now for SDRs is the personalization at scale. So we try to segment lists down to some degree so that we can try to reach out to use like one to many messaging, but make it feel like one to one. Um, maybe there's a little bit of personalization in an initial email. That's probably the most common motion right now. We call it the personalization at scale kind of motion. That's great in a certain context. Um, Mm -hmm. So if you've got, again, looking at your segments, so how big is my market that I have to go after? Looking at your spend, how much can I spend? That might make sense. But if you've got a tiny average deal size and a massive market and you have massive revenue goals, you might want to go just pure automation and just crank it up. Not that I would ever suggest that. I don't think that's the best approach, but it might be the only approach given all the other things. Um, If you've got, if you can't actually justify paying the paying for outbound or or doing the spend on outbound at all like specializing those people you might want to look at full cycle reps you might want to look at literally just letting inbound take care of it if you can't prove out that this is an outbound ideal customer profile um so that's kind of working backwards into less outbound territory and less customization territory but on the flip side you might need to use more touches more personalization more channels to acquire a customer might be a longer sales cycle harder to break in to those accounts harder to get in touch with people large buying committees so you need to be looking at a, a more account based or more manual um, sales development style so you need to choose the right style that suits the spend suits the segmentation suits the positioning yeah. and then from there it's the team structure like given your style, who do you need to have in the seat? Yeah. There's so much to explore there just in the, what motion is right for you. Um, this is, it's really funny because the, 
it doesn't really seem like I'm just trying to think of specific examples that very many companies actually sit down and think about, you know, if I were to think about this as a math equation and look at an, an SDR team and look at the cost of that and then try to like portion that cost out, the ROI that I need to get on that cost, like on a per hour basis to help like come up with a loose structure of, you know, answering questions like how long should I take to research? how many people at a company should I reach out to? Like there's kind of an equation that will give you a rough idea of what that is. But I'm curious, how do you guys think about that? I mean, is it is it average deal size? Is that kind of where you start? And that kind of dictates everything? Um, and then if if so, how do you think about the amount of effort? I guess, you know, it's such a such a hard thing, I think, for a lot of companies to do. Yeah. I think the average deal size is a pretty nice place to start. It's definitely going to be directionally correct, but I think there's other layers to be added in there. Um, Basically, we have a whole spreadsheet that we've created that actually factors in a whole bunch of this stuff. Um, Basically, you can plug in and input a whole bunch of the different um, conversion rates that you're expecting at any given place and look at your revenue targets look at the spend, and then see basically how many meetings you need to book to be able to profitably hit your revenue target or how many um, prospects you need to put in the top of the funnel given conversion rates that come down. So I think it is more complicated than most people make it because it's very easy to just say like, well, I'm paying my SDR 80K OTE. If they close, if they source two deals that close for 50 grand each, I've got a 20 grand profit not so. You've got to go look at all the other spend that you're putting into that outbound function. And that's where a lot of people don't look at it. Like when I bring this up with um, founders or sales leaders, and I'm like, okay, let's break down your spend. They're like, well, let me walk you through the comp plan. Like, here's the base, here's the whatever. And I'm like, this is this is only a part of your spend, actually. You've got fractional management. You've got fractional rev ops. You've got fractional sales enablement. Obviously, if you have those, the those tools, <laughs> you've got tools, your sourcing yeah. data, you bought Zoom Info. Okay, 40 grand right there. So there are yeah. all these other pieces that actually do contribute to the cost. Some of them variable, some of them fixed. So there's a little bit of sort of working that out there that has to happen. But you have to understand all the things that go into the cost to acquire a customer, which I think marketing is pretty good at, but sales generally is not so good at breaking down. We don't tend to track that to the same degree. So there's more that you can be looking at there to understand your cost. And then to understand, um, it's actually more simple to look at all the conversion rates to, to do that big math equation, to see what you need to, um, uh, th- what the output needs to be because it's all these things that we'd be tracking anyway as SDR management, like all the way back top of funnel conversion to opportunity conversion to close deal. And obviously you can put a whole bunch more things in between all those things. Um, but once you understand the costs, then you can just go, okay, closed revenue minus cost. <laughs> now I understand I need to go back and add more to the top of funnel, increase those conversion rates, like that sort of thing. Yeah. And that, it seems like a really obvious thing to do, I think, to someone like you or me. To, and again, I, it, it's crazy to me. I mean, just the meeting number, like the quota. I'm like, where did this number come from? Usually There's a revenue just no target rhyme or reason. Then, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, that's it. Let me tell you a really fun, <laughs> let me tell you a fun example of, of a client that came to us with, yeah, some like lofty, lofty uh, targets in mind. So- Client came to us, won't say their name, 
well-known company, um, but trying out outbound in, in a kind of certain um, segment or department of their company. Um, they had seven SDRs and no tool stack. So manual um, prospecting happening through literally like Gmail and their actual phones, cell phones on their desk. Yeah. So already... If you're an SDR leader or an SDR, you're like, ooh, red flag, going to take them a long time to do anything. Yeah. But their average deal size was also $700 per customer. And they had uh, revenue targets that were really big. Uh, and their per SDR meeting targets were like 30, 40 a month. And so just by looking at this math and saying like, okay, so you want 40. Let's let's figure out how many activities done manually would get us to 40 and what the profit would be on that $700 average deal size. Basically, when we worked our way back, even just looking at that deal size, the spend of having seven human beings that can't do things very quickly because they have no automation, each rep needed to be booking like 500 meetings a month before it was profitable. <laughs> and they were like, Oh, <laughs> I was like, yeah, not going to work, right? Like we've got to, something has got to give, yeah. whether it means we go up market so we get more cash from our customers, whether we use automation so that we get more meetings. I mean, there's no world where an SDR gets 500 meetings a month. Like really that, that average deal size had to move, but it can be so glaringly obvious, but only once you get it in front of you with all the right inputs and mostly people just don't look at that. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. That, that example, does it's funny, but it doesn't surprise me, you know? Mm. Um, yeah, I think the big lesson there is know your numbers, you know? Um, okay, I wanted to ask you, because you talked about positioning, love the stuff on that. You sort of segued into sales development style. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the personalization at scale. Are there other sales development styles that you see working or you recommend to clients or anything like that? Yeah, I think probably the most common um, place that that we end up having uh, customers sit in terms of that sales development style is sort of between personalization and account base. Like that, mm -hmm. on the whole, that is what is the most effective approach these days. Prospects are smarter. They can see if it's an automated email. So you're always going to get less responses from an automated email. So obviously you want to incorporate a little bit more personalization and then sort of how much personalization or how long we take to research will, will vary depending on the spend and obviously the, the profitability and how much you can, how much time you can spend, how many meetings you need to book, all that kind of stuff. Um, but one thing that has surprised me in, in coaching and consulting for, for these customers over the last little while is that there are so many examples of companies that just shouldn't specialize the SDR and the AE. And I know that that's like blasphemous. <laughs> I'm, I'm working with predictable revenue. Predictable revenue is all about the segmentation of the specialization, but only when it makes sense as a function of all those things that I've already talked about. And that's, that's a big, a big miss. Like, I think we can all get swept up in a, in the frenzy of like, this is the thing that works. I'm going to implement this at my company. Cause it's, it's the it's cutting edge. It's the most effective thing right now. It's just not always. It's just not always true. Um, and because hiring that SDR, you're going to have to pay them a com competitive rate. You're going to have to give them an, a, a good OTE. You're going to have to equip them with all these tools. They're expensive. So there are plenty of cases where you actually should have your AE doing full cycle sales. Maybe you you split it up like your your junior reps are doing full cycle on your on your kind of smaller SMB commercial, and then maybe you specialize for enterprise. But if if all your average deal sizes are kind of on the smaller side and and the math doesn't make sense on the SDR, that's fine. 
like it's totally fine to have um, an AE that or a full cycle sales rep. Like I think we've the pendulum has swung so far into the specialization realm that we really kind of hate on the the full cycle thing. But it totally makes sense sometimes to do the full cycle thing. I think reps should be expected to do their own outbound anyways, honestly. I mean, a, a percentage <laughs> of them, know? absolutely. Like even if yeah. you're doing specialization, we always say like 20, 25% self-source. Exactly. But in some cases yeah. it's like no self-source at all. Like there is not yeah. the the ROI is not there if we hire somebody to do this for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you think about the sustainability of these outbound programs, one of the things that comes to mind for me is there's the math part of it that makes a lot of logical sense. And then there's the execution of, you know, is it sustainable to have people that all they do is prospect? And like most of the companies that I see pulling this off, it's, you know, they keep an SDR for eight to 12 months and then they cycle them out. It reminds me of the stuff I was doing with the painting company. That company, I worked with them for seven years, you know, four of those were as a sales manager, Mm -hmm. uh, three of them, excuse me. And, the thing that was so frustrating is every year you hire a new batch of college students, yeah. you know, and you, you're working with new people all the time. And mm-hmm. I sense some of that in the people that manage these SDR teams where it's like, if, if there is product market fit and outbound does work, it's like, it almost, it makes a lot of sense that these companies just to outsource it to people like you guys, you know what I mean? Where, I don't know. What do you, what do you see in companies? How sustainable is, is it, you know, what, what a lot of these companies are doing? That's the thing I always think about. I'm like, Oh, if I, if I was a sales development manager, this would be, that's a tough job. You know, it is. It absolutely is. And I think it is a high turnover role. There's no doubt about that, but I think there's also kind of a range of how quickly people turn over depending on what that role looks like and how much opportunity they have in that role. Um, Just thinking back to one of our clients who it was real true enterprise sales, so like proper uh, account-based, long sales cycles, lots of people to reach out to, and also lots of opportunity within one account because you could work with a whole bunch of different departments and it'd be a whole separate opportunity. They had a really great SDR retention rate because they had great uh, base pay and they had really great commission. So there was there were plenty of people that were like, you know what? I'm happy to be in this type of role. I'm not trying to step up into the AE, step up into the SDR manager and just kind of whiz through um, my career and, and you know, move up the ladder. So I, I do see a real variety in, in the turnover and in the sustainability of like a person in the role. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely the lower the deal size and the sort of higher velocity, the motion, the less fun that can be, I think, in my own, you know, opinion, um, where it's like not a lot of personalization. You don't really get to know any of the customers. You're just supposed to like churn out, you know, input. Yeah. I think you, I think I've seen a pattern there. I haven't done the math, but just <laughs> kind of coming to mind, I think I see a pattern of higher turnover uh, in those types of prospecting roles. But it, it's always going to be a reality. Like you're going to have these people leave. And I think that's where building out a really clear playbook becomes so important because you don't want to lose the knowledge when somebody leaves and goes to another company. Mm -hmm. You don't want to lose, like they've been working on a new call script. They objection handled in a new way and it worked better. If you didn't capture that and that goes, you're just starting from scratch and you have to learn that all over again. Um, 
if you have people prospecting different markets, uh, using different messaging, um, all of that sort of stuff, it really needs to be stored somewhere so that when you bring on the next person, first of all, you ramp them quicker. Like we were chatting about, it's probably nine weeks up to three months, depending on on the company. But with us, we launch outbound within two weeks with our with our customers. So we can do that again. We can onboard that person really fast and get them going if we know what works and it's stored somewhere. Um, and there's sort of less risk to the to the turnover of reps. If you've got a great, great system, great frameworks, great playbook, it lives somewhere, someone's tasked with keeping it up to date, all that stuff. Yeah, I think that's like one of the biggest challenges is keeping people motivated, mm. you know. But with that being said, I mean, a lot of that is just are people able to get good results or not? Because if they're getting good results and you feel good about the job you're doing and you're making good money, retention seems to be pretty high you know, at those companies and, and just like the vibe yeah. and I've trained companies before. I'm like, Fuck, dude, this is just so bad. It's just like, everyone's like so really depressing. grumpy all the time. <laughs> like, Shit, dude. I also think there's kind of a perspective piece in there. Um, just an example. When I first started with outbound, my quota was 10, 10 meetings a month. And with our, I qualified like attended meetings on the AE side with our, who we're targeting, which is sales leaders. It's always a bit tough to, to target sales leaders. Cause we like, we get it. You're not going to yeah. like hoodwink a sales leader, um, especially when you're trying to sell them. For instance, like, hello, you're not hitting your goal that you're paid to hit. Would you like someone else to hit it for you? Like not, it doesn't feel good. So it was a bit of a, a grind to try and book through outbound. Um, but 10 was reasonable. It was like a stretch. It was hard, but we hit those meetings. And so my sort of um, baseline in my head is like a good standard outbound average is 10. Um, given, of course, all, all the different things. That's, I wouldn't you know recommend that to other companies, but in my mind, I'm like, yeah, 10's reasonable. Um, and so we yeah. had this, this client who came to us and um, their rep, I was chatting with them on team calls and I was like, you know, how's the past week on? And he's like, eh, it's been pretty slow. Like, honestly, I'm, I'm like not, not feeling really great, like not feeling super motivated. It's, it's been really tough. And, and I was like, okay, like to walk me through what's been happening on these calls. And it turned out this poor man had booked 12 demos that month that got attended but the expectation was really high. The The goal that this company is striving for is 30 demos a month, but it's the first time they've ever, ever done outbound. So it's one of those examples that we're talking about where it's pulled out of a revenue goal, yeah. not pulled out of reality. Yeah. So he had this 30 number in his mind. He's kind of new to the SDR role. So he was like, that's what good looks like. And he was really feeling demotivated that in his first month prospecting, first month ever, he booked 12 demos. And I was like, pause you're actually doing incredibly well, like very, very well. You are doing so well. If you look at the kind of global average for conversion, it is abysmal. Like there's a lot of teams that are doing bad, bad conversion rates uh, to meetings out there. But even by good standards, you're doing incredibly well. And especially given that it's your first month and especially given that we haven't even validated these strategies with this, this client because we're just building them for the first time. So that had a huge impact on his sort of, you know, engagement and satisfaction in the role, just understanding that in the context of what he was doing, he was actually doing well. Whereas when he looked at this massive target and was like, man, I'm less than half of that, I'm going to get fired, then it doesn't feel good. But when, when I kind of flipped it for yeah. him, like I never, my best months where I like exceeded quota, um, because, you know, all the pipeline that you've been working just happens to kind of come in at that that one moment. I think my best ever month was like 13 for, for predictable yeah. on a quota of 10. So you're killing it. Yeah. I, I see, I've seen sometimes for enterprise, the expectation 20 meetings a month. And I'm like, 
Are you fucking kidding me? Like, come on, dude. Um, I highly recommend people check out uh, the bridge group puts out a really good annual report with, you know, good metrics and stuff. Is there any other places that you like to follow for good sales data? Um, I think Gong does a great job of putting out stuff like that as well. A little bit more on, on the, um, like it's a little further up, up the funnel, the stuff that they're um, kind of reporting on, but it's still, it's really great to kind of benchmark off that stuff or just see what, what they're seeing working and not working. Yeah. Yeah. There's some really good, uh, I just been coming more of a, I had a client point out to me one time. He was like, dude, we love your content. My feedback from my team is they would like to see more data though. It's not that they don't believe you. It's just interesting. Mm -hmm. And uh, most of the data it's done on such a macro level that honestly, I don't think it's very useful, but if you can use it to reinforce a point, it's, it's pretty cool. But yeah, Gong's definitely, I think at the best stuff when it comes to conversational intelligence and, and things that they've, you know, actual words that people are using and, and how they perform. And most of it is backing up common sense sales advice. That's what I love about, I think you're quite a bit younger than I am, but when I was getting into sales, like in 2008, um, dude, there wasn't data, there wasn't podcasts and I'm not even that old. I'm 33 years old. You know what I mean? It's like, there wasn't any of this kind of data anywhere. It was just like, Jeffrey Gittimer's book saying you should do this kind of stuff. You know what I mean? It was principles, but there was nothing that was like mm-hmm. backed by any kind of data. And uh, I don't know if you're in sales right now, I feel like it's just the golden era right now because there's just so much content. Yeah. Um, Somebody else jumped to mind just, just while you were sharing that. Cause I just did a podcast episode. It's not due to come out for a little while, but um, with Peter Kazanji, who's the founder of Atrium and Atrium oh, yeah. is a, a product that, basically allows sales managers to track more data than a lot of the tools allow us to do in an effective way, but they put out great content around that sort of stuff as well. So they're a really good resource. And I think you can even, you can even uh, sign up for a free Atrium account and like look at a dashboard that puts together some really robust stats. So I agree. And that was our, our whole kind of topic on the podcast was like, it, it is the time that you need to manage teams with data. Like you need to use data in sales. Now it's there and it's not just like, ooh, nice to have, it's neat to have. So yep. yeah. Absolutely. Um, it's been great. I got a couple rapid fire questions for you. Mm-hmm. These are kind of fun. You ready? Yep. All right. So not that you have to choose, but it's always fun to ask people. If if you had to choose between phone, email, or social for outbound, what do you pick and why? Good question. I'm gonna say social. Um, I feel that there's so much rich stuff there to leverage to make the outreach feel less cold. So whether that's doing a little bit of engagement before you reach out, whether it's referring to something that you've seen them do and reaching out or just using certain activity as a trigger for outreach, um, I think it's a one way to like capitalize on stuff that they're busy doing, stuff that they care about, stuff that they're talking about, and then just capitalize it right, right in the same platform. Love it. What's something you believe about sales that most would disagree with? Hmm. Good question. <laughs> That's tough. That is a tough one. Mm. You only like you have all the luxury of like a predictable revenue. That's where you started, right? So you've probably been fed mostly good stuff <laughs> from, the, from the beginning. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not like having massively <laughs> diverging opinions than than my company, that's for sure. Um, but I think 
I guess maybe it's not so much that people wouldn't agree with. It's just that they're not thinking about it. And it's that the strategy is mm-hmm. more important than the tactics. Like stop getting so hung up on how to write the perfect sequence. Like just try something, but go back and make sure you're actually even reaching out to the right people with vaguely the right message before you start getting into the nitty gritty of like, how many calls did my rep do today? Oh, yeah. uh, 60, it should be 120. That's why it's failing, you know? Yeah. Lastly, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give yourself as a rookie sales professional? I think I think um, look at buying triggers and how you might be able to build lists out of those things. So that was something I kind of landed on quite late in my SDR career. But I, I started to look at people who posted on LinkedIn about sales related stuff, and then the people that commented on those posts and targeting those people. And hands down, remains to this day the highest open rates and highest response rates in predictable revenue history for for prospecting. And now I look with with our customers through that lens, like we've got a customer who helps um, gyms get more uh, positive reviews or five-star reviews or just a higher volume of reviews. So to be able to build, go on Google, scrape who all has a 4.0 and below, and then reach out to those people about that thing as a buying trigger, wonderful. Um, or a, a client who has who targets construction companies um, and helps them make sure that their projects aren't delayed or or kind of off track. So again, if you could even look at Google reviews again for for people that are kind of bad mouthing construction companies and saying like, oh, this went five months over and over budget and I was so unhappy. That's a trigger to be able to reach out about that thing. So instead of trying to go from this really wide lens of like who's all out there that we could speak to and how do we speak to them with a kind of generic message and capture more of them at once, like don't just think of the things that are going to mean they'll get that they need you now and start there and look for more of those as opposed to trying to blanket everybody. Yeah. I love that. It's, it's a lead based approach to account based. It's like a hybrid, you know, kind of between the two. Um, This has been great having you on Uh, for those listening, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple podcast, Spotify, all that kind of good stuff And Sarah, before you take off, where can people go to connect with you, learn more about predictable revenue, all that good stuff. Yeah. So definitely connect with me on LinkedIn, always sharing lots of stuff. I've got the Predictable Revenue podcast as well. I'm the host over there. I've had Jason on there so you can see him on on our podcast as well. But feel free to shoot me a connection request on LinkedIn. And we've also got tons of great resources. If you look um, at our content on predictablerevenue.com, we got the blog, we got the podcast. And if it's the blog page, especially has a great little keyword search function. So if you're like, Ooh, I'd really know how to like to know how to objection handle better. You can just pop in objection handle and, and great content will pop up. 